What is it about? Computational communication science? Hi, welcome to a new episode of our podcast, What is it about computational communication science? Our episode today is about why do you write your own software? My name is Emma Schadmohidi. I'm an assistant professor at the Technische Universität Ilmenau in Germany. Hi, my name is Mario Heim. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Leipzig for data journalism, focusing on computational communication research. And today I'm very happy to welcome Felicia Löcherbach, a PhD candidate at Freie Universität of Amsterdam. And she is the current Young Scholar representative at the Computational Methods Division of the ICA. The ICA is our biggest or largest uh, association in the field. First of all, welcome Felicia. Very nice to be here. <laughs> It's great to have you. Um, you've done quite a lot for the Young Scholars community um, in, in recent years and months. You founded a Slack community for Young Scholars in the area of computational methods. You're running that currently, as far as I understand that. I already said you, you are a Young Scholar representative at the Computational Methods Division. And you're also an editorial assistant at Computational Communication Research, one of the methodological journals in our field. But also, and this is probably also one part of the reason why we invited you, you wrote your own research software. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I actually already for my for my master thesis started out to look into research software because we got into research problems where we got frustrated about the kind of designs that were out there and the way that data was gathered. And we figured, well, why not make our own thing to solve some of those issues? So yeah, we, we decided to basically have our own software tool for testing news recommender systems. That's how it started, I guess. And with you, you're talking about um, you as a master student, but also your, your supervisor yeah. at that time? Yeah, so, so you could uh, say it was basically uh, us discussing what I wanted to do for my master thesis and then seeing that there were a lot of methodological issues around the topic. Then my thesis supervisor basically came up with the suggestion, hey, how about you write your own application? And I didn't know how to do that and I had no clue and he also <laughs> didn't really have a clue. So <laughs> that was a great start. <laughs> but but what, what are the issues then? I mean, what prevents you, prevented you or also prevents us in, in research from, well, using what is already out there? What are the issues that lead to the necessity of developing an own research software? Yeah, so I mean, for us in this specific case, it was basically that we wanted to see how people interact with different algorithms when they want to consume news, but we also wanted to have it in an experimental setting. And that was sort of one of the issues that we wanted to have a very clean design. So for example, no ads or no photos distracting from the headlines, etc, etc. So we couldn't just, you know, use a total real world setting but we also wanted to have it over time so there's not just this one time selection that you're used to from survey experiments for example so in, in survey experiments you would you know present people with five different headlines and they choose one and that's that's all there is but of course if you want to have an an algorithm that adapts to what people select over time then you really need to have a, a program that can yeah save all those digital traces that people leave behind and adapt to them We wanted to also do this so that we are in complete control of the data being collected so that we can have our own research design. And we couldn't find a good tool for this anywhere. So we decided to make our own. 
It, this is really interesting, especially if students are listening. I would like just to sum up that obviously a research software is a lot more than just code. It is the implementation of a research framework, right, in code. Yes, exactly. I mean, in, in the end, the good thing about us being social scientists and not just computer scientists is that we can answer substantive questions with, with the software that we're designing. So I don't think that I would have written software without being for a very clear research purpose and, and questions that I wanted to answer. It's not necessarily about just building a cool tool, but that, yeah, that I basically ran into issues with the designs that were out there. Okay, Felicia. So your very first own research software you did. Tell us more about it. <laughs> uh, yes, sure. So yeah, the, the project that we made was called uh, Drie by Drie, and that's only understandable for Dutch speakers, I guess. Uh, it, it basically tells you that you have three by three news on a computer screen, and actually it's nine by one on a mobile screen, where people interact with live scrape news. So basically we used Python to scrape news from, I think, five major newspapers in the Netherlands and put them in a database. And then people went onto our website. So for them, it just looked like a normal news website without the pictures, which is already quite a stretch from a normal news website. But we told them it was a prototype they were supposed to test. And then, yeah, they basically had to read news. So they had to sign up for the system and then use it, I think, for a week in total and simply select the news they were most interested in. And in the background, there was an experimental design where people got assigned different kinds of personalization, different kinds of news personalization, where we wanted to see how people interact with those systems over time, how much they feel in control, how it changes the news they select on the platform, how they yeah, experience the whole system. That was basically sort of the main idea. So in the in the back end, we used Python mostly and also a system for collecting news articles that we have at our Amsterdam universities. Yeah, the whole system adapts to the users over time, basically. That That's sort of how my master thesis went, I guess. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like an impressive master thesis, I would say. It, it was mostly fun. And also it got me into actually learning Python way better than I did before, because it's so different working on your own project compared to just learning, learning some code in class, because at some point it's like your little baby that you're working on and you put a lot of time into it. So yeah, it was a very good experience. So when we compare that to, say, a regular news recommender platform that is out there, and there are several out there, the main difference is not so much in what the platform does, but the main difference or the main reason why you built that software is that you were able to control the environment, you were able to measure what people do and collect the traces that people leave behind, something that we as researchers don't have access to when we look at common news recommender platform. I mean, it's a very common thing to always talk about this black box of the algorithm. And that's that's an issue because we, we know that Facebook uses an algorithm in the background, but you also need to somehow be able to maybe change the parameters of the background in your experimental setting so that you are in full control actually of what, what happened when people interacted with the system. And of course, we, we sometimes see that you can get access to data by, for example, collaborating with news providers. But in terms of, for example, reproducibility of the findings or really being in control of you're doing what you're doing in your research design that of course has also a lot of limitations so in in this case i'm in control of all the parameters and all the data that is being collected which is of course very nice to have 
So it's opening up the, the algorithmic black box in quotation mark, ensuring some sort of transparency while at the same time being able to control for all the parameters that are potentially affecting every um, aspect of news personalization. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think we also went for a mix between it still being somewhat related to a real life news experience, but also being an experiment. For example, when I'm saying like the ads and the photos were missing, of course, people noticed. So it's not a total real life experience, but you also have less distracting factors that you can sort of exclude yeah, as, as potentially disturbing your experimental design. I know that you, Mario, as well wrote research software in the past. Maybe you want to tell us as well about it. Not in my master's thesis, though. Uh, we we built um, we built a, a browser plugin essentially where we asked people to um, if they were to participate in our study, where we asked them to install that plugin into their uh, Firefox or their Chrome browser, and the plugin then unobtrusively in the background kind of scraped and collected public posts that our participants saw on Facebook. So people opted in to kind of share their public Facebook posts, the posts they saw in their feed with our project, but they weren't to share them actively, but the, the plugin collected them autonomously in, in the background. We did so in order to find out what role personalization and your, your Facebook surfing and browsing behavior plays for the selection of, of posts, public posts, you see, especially those from, from news outlets. Well, just as Felicia, uh, Felicia said, we don't have access into the trace data that people leave behind on platforms such as Facebook or Google or even on Apple News or whatever platform it is. So we need to build or foster an environment, a research environment, where we can access those traces, where we can access what people actually do and see in order to yeah well investigate the research questions that we have that is how do people consume their news what news do they get how biased is the news selection they get depending on algorithmic influences depending on personalization and in order to to get this data in order to get a glimpse at what is going on we need to build environments or or tools software that helps us get more transparency into into these biases and into these algorithmic curating systems so, so that's why we, we felt the need to, to do that. And there are some similar approaches where people make use of their right to get their own data from the platforms and then kind of donate that data to researchers. So that's a different um, different thing that we can also see in several research pro projects going on. So there are other uh, researchers, of course, as well, who develop their own software in order to collect these uh, data donations. In our case, it was a kind of a, an on-top browser plugin that observed people while they were browsing. And in Felicia's case, it was a, a whole environment where people started to use that. So I think these are three types of research software that emerged in this computational communication realm. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot of a lot more tools that are about to come in it. Yeah, so I mean, when, when it comes to data donations, we are also at the moment in, in Amsterdam working on this, for example, developing toolkits to make it easier for researchers to actually make use of data that has already been collected basically for us, which is, of course, also very nice to have. So your, your browsing history is stored on your computer. At, at Facebook, you can request your own data, etc. So I think that's also a very nice way forward to have research software that helps us make use of data that already exists. 
instead of yeah having it always collect ourselves. <laughs> I, I think some of that research software really should not be necessary in the sense that we should have access to some of that data. However, currently that's not the case, also because these platforms consider themselves tech platforms rather than media platforms, which comes with a lot of rights and, well, obligations or not obligations or obligations that they don't have because they call themselves tech companies. Um, I think we should do, I'm sure we should do a future episode probably on the legal aspects of, of, of that as well. But for now, the, these software solutions, for some research questions at least, are the best way we can get our, our hands at that. But what does it even mean to code your own software? This is, this is not that easy, right? Because you already mentioned that you're, you had to learn it for your master thesis. So actually, mm. it's nothing we do teach in uh, communication science normally. So it is, of course, an effort. I guess you should tell our audience about uh, <laughs> what it actually meant for you practically. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I was actually lucky that I did have a master's program where we got an introduction into writing code in Python. So most people, for example, write in, in R or in Python for creating research software like that. And yeah, I, I was just very lucky because I didn't have any prior programming knowledge. I had never heard of it. I just did a normal, as you would call it, like a social science, communication science degree, where you're more used to like survey designs and experiments yes. and things. In the end, what I ended up with was actually looking at an online tutorial on how to write a Python application and basically following that from, from A to Z. And then uh, I had sort of a, a prototype of something that works. And then I started adapting it to my own needs. So for me, that helped a lot to, to first get an example from someone who actually knows what they're doing. In the end, what, what you do is write very detailed instructions that the computer can follow. So it's just a very long script of saying, if this happens, please do that. <laughs> that that's very basic thing um, to do. And there you, yeah, for example, if you have an application, you just tell it what different scripts to call yeah, from, from different folders, basically. What I then also needed to learn is knowing a bit more, for example, about databases. So where, where do I store my data? What does this look like, uh, etc. And then uh, I had a, a finished application that ran on my laptop and that was great. And I was very happy with it until uh, I also figured that I need to make it accessible to others. So at that point, what I also needed is some, some knowledge about how do I, so we, we call it deploy the application. So that means uh, that actually people who want to take part in my study they don't have access to my local laptop. So I need to put that somewhere on the server so that it actually looks like a website that people have access to. Yeah, there's a lot of things then involved there, which luckily was part of the tutorial that I used. So, so I didn't have to figure it out all by myself. That, that, for example, the website doesn't crash if more than five people visit it or that it runs day and night, all those kind of things. That's then really, yeah, sort of the, the last step. But before it's mostly uh, that you can get quite far with, for example, Python, building your own application, building your own little program. It's a lot of try and error, I'd say, but in the end, it, it all worked out. So that was very nice. <laughs> it's probably also good to know that it's not dead end if you start with the, again, in quotation marks, wrong programming language. If you start to learn Python and at some point realize, well, I should probably have started use, doing what I do with, let's say, 
PHP or, or Java or any other language, it's easier to change languages once you got into yes. programming and coding. Yeah, that, that's also something I can totally see. So I started out with Python and then I had some people who said, you really should learn R. And then it turns out the two are very similar. So that was already easier. And then we are now working on some projects where I actually do need JavaScript. And although it is different, once you know one programming language, it gets way easier to get into the structure of what it looks like. So that helped a lot. So I'm, I'm now also, again, back to learning, starting from not the start, luckily but still going back to some basics and i think if one does not have the chance to learn in in a, in a master's class or the master's program um, some sort of python or get some sort of python introduction there are several other options to to get started also with regard to the discipline to the field there are some online courses on um, computational social science for example some summer and winter schools where you are to learn coding with an idea or a perspective from a science or a scientific perspective really yes also for example at, at our university we usually have winter schools and i already taught i think two or three times python for social scientists which is then just a one-week crash course it's more meant for like getting a first grip because a lot of people think programming is so scary and you know you open up this black screen and just type some some stuff in your terminal and it all looks very confusing at the beginning but after one week people are already able to yeah to understand the basics of the language so it's it's very cool to just look up some summer or winter schools online courses is always very nice so the yeah. learning the learning curve is pretty steep yeah. especially in the beginning it's also something we talked about with uh, Valerie Hase in an earlier episode of this podcast so if you you as listeners are interested more in that um, that's probably also something to catch up with Felicia did you get any support I mean you told us that you worked your way through some tutorials and of course I, I remember I mean I, I did this in, in different uh, circumstances but of course this is how most of us learn to do something right but then sometimes we need some kind of support and I imagine as a master yeah. student with such a big project it's not nice to be alone so mm -hmm. that's why did you get yeah. any support and if so which kind of Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, my, my supervisor also knows a lot of Python. He didn't know specifically like how, how to build those applications. But apart from that, of course, he, he knows his way around Python. So he helped me a lot with it. And now as I'm also in my PhD working on things, it turns out it's very nice to just work with people from other departments at our university. So we also have computer scientists or we we do have computational linguists who work on those topics and usually they are very happy if a, if a social scientist comes to them and says hey i actually have a very good idea here for a study do you maybe want to want to work with me on on some of that code because for them that's usually what they are very good at mm -hmm. and they can for example at least point you in the direction of what kind of programming language or library would be most useful for this. So then you can start your own research. It's, it's more that you don't start out and do something that turns out to be super inefficient <laughs> because you didn't ask an expert on the subject first. For me, it usually really helps to look around a bit at the university and not just within your department. And for that, I think also communities such as the Slack channel is something that can really help bring people together if they don't have the opportunity within their own institutions to reach out to computational linguists or uh, other yeah. computationally affine fields. 
yeah, that, that's also, I think, one of the main reasons why I decided to make this Slack channel. Because, I mean, also during the pandemic, it might be that you have those people at your university, but you simply couldn't contact them uh, in a very good way. <laughs> yes. But but also because there are a lot of people out there who don't, who simply don't know where to start and who to ask. So we, for example, have one, one sub channel in, in our Slack that's just meant for questions about anything. So we have people who just say, hey, I, I want to start a project. And I think I've heard that already one or two co collaborations came out of this, where, where people simply didn't know uh, they, they had a great idea of what they wanted to do, but not the means. So then it's very good to just connect with other people who have experience in that area. Definitely. It might be too overwhelming to start from the scratch, right? Without any, let's say, friends, <laughs> friends who can help you or um, who you could ask about your doubts or maybe even the project management, as you said before, it's not just programming, it's as well about databases and how to store the data, how to make it available. So it's so much around this. Uh, I guess such a community is really helpful. Let me just ask now, imagine If you are a young PhD student, so I guess you can imagine this very well. So what, what I can is the imagine. reward? <laughs> yes. So what is the reward that, uh, on, on doing a research software? Isn't it easier to just try to write papers as quick as possible and don't spend your time with that? Yes and no. <laughs> so you will, you will definitely be question. done. Yeah, you will definitely be done sooner uh, if you just run a few surveys. Uh, that that's for sure. Uh, so of course there is quite quite some work involved, especially when when this is like not the main field that you're working on. I mean, I'm not a computational scientist, but but on the other hand, yeah, it, it's that you can collect so much nicer data so so you know for example the the whole method section of the papers that you can write with it gets so much more exciting and so much more innovative <laughs> yeah that for me it's also part of why why i like research and why i like my work that i can work on implementing my own thoughts and my own ideas and i'm way less limited in the questions that i can ask when i can write my own software so that's more like sort of internally that i enjoy my my job while i'm doing this but of course it's also that you know the the whole open science movement for example has mm -hmm. developed quite a bit so by now it is being more and more rewarded if you actually do something like this so if you do make your own software and also make it available to others to use in their own research designs that you can actually do something that others yeah will also implement maybe or that others will further develop on so for example with this tool i made i now have a few colleagues who pick it up for other studies make their own new and improved version of it and i think that's that's pretty cool to see i i think for me those those are points on the on the one hand it's very nice for myself but on the other hand i think it also helps other people to get better research designs out there and of course there's the external reward of publication so you did publish a paper yes. and I'm, i'm not able to to say this in the right way so i will just say three by three <laughs> developing a framework for researching recommender systems and their effects which was published in computational communication research. So you did publish this together yeah. with Damian Trilling. So this is, of yes. course, as well a great reward that we have these opportunities nowadays, right, to publish this in at least in, in, in the computational journal, but other journals might be open for that as well. Yeah, I, I think this is also something that we will see more and more in the future. 
So yeah, at, at computational communication research, it's very welcome there. You can also write specific tool papers that are, for example, shorter than the normal papers that you would look at. Also at the ICA, our international conference, there's always a dedicated section just for tool presentations, which is usually actually the fullest uh, presentation that you can see at the conference because everybody's so interested in the new methods mm -hmm. and tools coming out. So I think there's a lot of options and, and also other journals are being more and more open to accepting more tool-oriented presentations, yeah. And if we, if we look into computer scientists, we also see that people put that into their CVs. And I start seeing that also in our field where while it's not a, an actual publication, just the, just quotation marks again, just the, the research software, people still put the research software, if it's, for example, on GitHub, they put it into their CV in a special section software to at least showcase it and, and present it to potential employers. If you apply somewhere as computational communication scientist, probably it's quite good that you can, you know, show that you can actually write code. So so it's always very good to to actually have something that you can can present also on your CV that others can look. But but if you put it on say GitHub um, and want others to use it, do you put any licensing on it? Have you thought mm. about that? Is that something where you can make it easier or harder for others to, to work with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really not an expert in licensing. You would actually have to ask uh, Wouter. I think he also was at some point on your podcast uh, earlier. Mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's our wizard in licensing and actually knows all of those by heart. But <laughs> but in the know. end, we, for example, yeah, it, it's it's <laughs> yes. very helpful because those yes. are complicated. <laughs> so so I always just ask him, but I, I remember that we we recently had something when it comes to data donations, for example, it's, it's a tool where people just upload very private data and do stuff with it on your own server. And, you know, we are researchers and all of this went through the ethical board and everything. But mm -hmm. of course, if you make this an open license software, then it might be that someone uses it, you know, to just collect all kinds of data without any ethical approval from the users. And of course, then we need to, to make sure to use license that means that it's open source, but we don't have any liability or warranty in case anyone uses it for something that we wouldn't approve of ethically. So we always try to make it as open source as possible, but also making sure we only approve of usage that actually is, you know, ethical and and protects also, for example, privacy of users. So that's, so that's something, a licensing aspect that it doesn't fall back on you, but it's also the opposite that is possible through licensing, right? You can force others that they yes. cite you. I mean, in, in research, people should do that anyhow, but also for commercial uses or for other uses, people can make use of your project, your software, and then um, need to claim where they got it from, which is also something uh, at least from an intrinsically motivated perspective, something nice to be proud of, essentially. Yeah, I mean, in, from, from what I know, it's also that at the moment people usually cite, you know, if you then publish a paper on the software, but uh, in, in computational science, it's already becoming more and com more common that you cite the software directly. And I hope that we're also going to get there. So usually on, on GitHub's with research software, you can find like how to probably cite this research software. So if you use any uh, or build on any software, then it's always good to, to cite also the developers properly because they put a lot of work into it. 
how much work is this in terms of documentation and support or how much work was it for you i mean i can i can't put hours on it probably but yeah of course that's one one issue that also comes with it if you put out that software and you want other people to use it you also need to make sure that they actually can use it for me that was something i wasn't very very used to so i i just said you know this is how i did it and good luck with it and this is probably what you most of the time see <laughs> when you when you look around github just people saying good luck uh, go for it and and then you know when you have more advanced projects then they usually actually add a lot of documentation to it they add a lot of for example tutorials on how to properly install the software etc but of course it's also a mix that you need to yeah make sure that you don't become the the service desk at some point that people start emailing you whenever they run into any kind of problems with your software so yeah i i think it's a mix that you provide a documentation that is good enough actually for people to use and that you're also open for example on github you can you can create issues so that if people have something about your software that they run into problems can basically say hey here's an issue and flag it and then hopefully either you can pick it up or you already have other people using the software who can help out with it i mean in the end the good thing about open source is that everybody can collaborate so you do not have to stay in charge uh, completely all of the time and handle everyone's issues in the future ever ever <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be terrible if i had to do this yeah but but i could already see so when when a few colleagues now decided to pick it up that some of the things that i did two or three years ago don't work anymore so that the packages are outdated or that something that isn't as easy to install anymore as I envisioned it. So then they decided to basically find out how to solve it and write some new documentation that, that also worked out quite well without me having to solve all the issues. So I got very lucky there. Sounds great. You mentioned something before that I wanted to get back to. Um, you said that you don't want to provide liability or warranty with, with licenses because you went through ethical considerations mm -hmm. and ethical advisory boards. So can we step into that part, not the uh, licensing part, but the ethics part? So mm. presumably what differentiates us or the research software part from, from just software is that we have the social scientific research perspective in mind mm. when developing such tools and environments. But what does that really mean? So I, I, I can answer that for, for, for the browser plugin, but what considerations did you have in mind when you thought about building your own tools from an ethical perspective? Yeah, I mean, so for us, for example, at our universities, we actually need to go through quite a long process of a whole ethical board at our university, looking at our research design, seeing if, if there can come any harm to people, for example, when, I don't know, our, our server isn't secure enough and there's private data on it. Like, how do we secure the data that we collect from people? Because often it's very private data. But of course, what's, for example, included in all of the tools that I have is very strong informed consent at the beginning, which, you know, seems 
probably for most people like a very normal thing because you know it at the beginning of each survey you you know just get get a page that you probably don't need don't read that that tells you exactly what will be happening in the study and what kind of data will be collected and also what people can do in case they later on decide that they don't want to have their data stored all those different things that you need to keep in mind for example for for my master thesis before you sign up to the service you first have to agree to this informed consent before you even do anything. And I also had one or two people who then two weeks later contacted me and said, hey, I decided I do not want to be part of this anymore. So I had to have good ideas in place on how to actually delete all of their data safely from their system. In the end, it's, it's a lot of things about just thinking how can we best protect the data that we collect from people and also, for example, who can we share the data with afterwards because if if i think about for example the the data donations that we work with people give us their whole browsing histories and that's of course not not the kind of data that you just give give to anyone people can be very easily de-identified from from the data that they give to us so yeah there's loads of different considerations there in place and i'm always very glad that we have a good ethical board that actually helps us to see where there might be issues so that you don't start collecting data and then all of a sudden think, oh, we, we don't actually know how to safely store it or what, what to do with it, who to share it with. This is such a good point because we are used that these kind of ethical considerations are found around experimental studies nowadays or maybe surveys, but actually not that much if we, if we move to computational communication science where we have often like content analysis of digital trace data and then people might easily think oh yeah this can be anonymized or the data already has been collected or the companies have this sort of data as well so i think it's an important point that you outline how sensitive these data sources are sometimes and i think that applies on, on different levels also so you mentioned the informed consent which is common sense, I would say, especially in experimental research. So we also did that. We presented people before they even participated with exact and very detailed information, also with screenshots explaining what we will do so that they are informed when they give their consent. Um, so that's on a, on a very individual level. But then also we kind of had to, and you just mentioned that as well, ensure data security, which is a very technical thing to do, to, to encrypt and decrypt information before it passes certain connections, before it transfers from one server to another, ensuring that these servers are probably located, in our case at least, in the European Union, because for the, for the browser observation project we promised participants also, but that's not a given, right? So, so that also introduces a different level of access to potential access at least to data if you store that on servers that run in in, in a different part of, of the world and then the third thing we we had in place was a tool where people could log in while they were participating in the project and see the data we got from them and were able to also delete individual pieces so as you said they were able to step back out of the project but also to delete individual pieces of information if they didn't want that to be part of the of the data collection so we wanted to provide them with complete sovereignty of their own personal data side note in our case nobody made use of that which is 
However, not an argument to don't offer that option the next time. I would do that the same way again. Something that was very different in our projects, at least from what I hear from you, is we also tried to get an ethics advisory board to check our setup, but we got rejections, not after checking, but before checking. They said, well, we are unable to check any software because we lack mm. the technological backgrounds. So that's something yeah. we we really struggled with getting some sort of independent review to present to, to participants. Yeah. No, actually, I, I heard that from a few colleagues already, that this is quite an issue that our ethical boards are very much equipped to look at an experimental design and tell you whether this is okay. But if you then get there and say, hey, I want to collect browsing histories, they don't really know Uh, what to do with it. So for us, uh, we were, for example, lucky that we have something called a network institute at our university that collaborates then with the ethical boards to actually, you know, provide them also with the proper IT experience. But of course, we're very lucky in this to, to already have it. So I think it, it then might even be a good good idea to reach out to, for example, other researchers who are very experienced in that area and ask for their opinion on whether this is, you know, even a good idea or a good research design to go through with. Because you sometimes lose sight. So when, when I now look at the digital traces we collected, I can already see a lot of red flags in the data where I'm like, I, I wouldn't even want to collect that data in the first place, probably. I, I think it can be a bit difficult to find good ethical advice, but we should nonetheless try to get it because that's also what, what makes us then different from companies that we do it in research setting. Thank you for the story of how you did develop a software in which challenges arose. Of course, in the hindsight, uh, what would you do differently today this is always of course easy to say but uh, if you, if yes but i mean it's part of the learning process right uh, to say okay yes. next time i might change this or that so yeah. uh, maybe for some people maybe they can already start with the knowledge you have about something mm. yeah so i still do think that it was good you know going through the whole process from beginning to end by myself because it, it made me, you know, really be committed to a software project and learn a lot along the way. But I also think I should have reached out sooner to people who are really sort of more experienced in the field. So I get a good idea of, yeah, what, what kind of path should I pick when developing my, my software? So what are the best libraries to do that, etc., etc. So I have a little less of just day long try and error and maybe, uh, you know, get, get some more support. But I think for me, looking back, what I would have changed is to already start with documentation and making sure that the tool is, for example, easy to install and reusable uh, earlier on. Because what I did, and I think what I still do when I start research projects, I'm just not learning, is to first, you know, make something that works and that only I ever can understand and do not, you know, make proper comments <laughs> in the code. And then, you know, two days later, you look at it and you're like, I don't understand what I did there. And I really have to force myself to, to, you know, start out already quite 
properly and to always document what I do so that it makes it easier for myself, but also for others to actually use the code later on. So yeah, if I, if I look back at the code and then I had colleagues and who, who asked me like, do you remember what you did there? And I look at it and I'm like, no, I, I have no clue what I did there. And of course that could have been prevented if I just, yeah, had started with some better documentation early on. And I think that's very important when starting out with a software project. But sometimes it's so tempting and so rewarding yeah, to just make something that works. Yes, yes, yeah. I go back and I do it. And uh, yes, of course, later on, it's um, yes. maybe not. Yes, in the hindsight, it's not the best idea, but uh, still maybe motivating. And what about cooperation with computer scientists? I mean, we talked about this uh, before that you said yeah, maybe sometimes you are uh, now talking to people who are working in different departments. Do you think it makes sense to work with computer scientists or to cooperate more or that we include this more in the curriculum of computational communication science studies? Well, I mean, of course, I, I'm going to say both. So I, I do think it's it's quite nice also for, so for, from, from both sides, so from the social scientists, but also for the computer scientists, it's actually increasingly super interesting to actually work on substantive questions or on societally relevant questions with us. So we have quite a few teams where we work together. What I can see there is... For example, the difference in vocabulary or the difference in how you do projects is sometimes really striking. I, I remember in my, in my PhD project, I do a lot of work on diversity and what social scientists mean by that and what computer scientists mean by it are totally different concepts. So then we need to actually figure out how to, you know, how to cooperate and how to talk to each other. And by that, I already learned a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have learned only talking to communication scientists all day. Like those cooperations are easier when both sides have at least some basic knowledge of what the other side does. So that's why it's so helpful that I already knew some coding and programming before I started talking to the computational scientists, because then we at least had some common ground and knowledge on, on what to do together. So yeah, I, I think we both need to cooperate, but also learn some stuff. Some things we should learn from my understanding and from my experience also is that I think we should incorporate more professionalization into our software developments, at least in the long run. Uh, while there is nothing to say against the quick and easy motivating uh, script, of course, um, or the first word cloud you come up with, I think there is a lot to a test-based modularized documented development where part of software development is also that you code test scenarios that test your codes and pieces of your code that you differentiate your code into individual models that modules that you could reuse in other pieces of the code that you could individually test that you could individually update also and to to properly document that and i know this is a pain in the but it's still i think for a long-term professionalization of software tools or research software in our field i think that's something where we where we should head to in the, in the coming years and for that i'm also convinced that we need more maybe not programming skills but really research software coding really specific research coding skills in our curricula as well yeah, I can only agree there. I actually recently took one or two workshops that were about all those 
for example, testing and modularity. And I learned a lot and I also, you know, it's it's about the same sentiment. So of course it's it's a lot of work implementing it, but later on you can actually ensure that it is something that can be reused and that your work isn't done for just this one paper and then you're done, but that others can actually get something out of it in the future. Yeah. And, and one thing we, we also learned in the in the browser plugin project is apart from the, the licensing and the updating stuff that comes along with the whole development is the, the question for support, not only for future developers, but also for users. So what I really underestimated is how many users could potentially have different setups where, I mean, of course you, you have in mind that there are Windows computers and Macs and uh, also other setups with different browsers and versions, but there are so many of them that you, you still get requests and problems uh, that people uh, address you with so that you really should prepare when you start or when you go into the field with a, a research uh, software that you coded, that you really should prepare for some support that you would be available for, at least from, from, from our experience. I'm not sure how, how maybe maybe three by three did work out. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was terrible no, doing, doing, the, doing the, the support. So being the one who answers all the emails is really uh, something that you need to, to consider beforehand. I mean, for me, it was even funnier because I did the email support in my non-native language. <laughs> so it was a lot of, you know, auto-translating the, the answers. But yeah, uh, as, as you said, so of course we know there's, there's Mac and Windows, but we, for example, had the instruction, download this file and then upload it here. And then we figured, you know, those are clear instructions. And then it turned out that a lot of people don't know where their download folder is. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all those kind of things, of course, if you then work with more diverse samples, then sometimes you need to test those instructions over and over again to actually make sure that people understand what they are supposed to do and where to click and what to install. And then there's the firewall is activated and they can't install a program, all those kind of things. So that's actually something where you need to know there needs to be someone probably to answer all of those emails, which, yes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and with that, we are even even back to the testing scenarios because testing not only means testing your individual code pieces, but also testing from a user's perspective. The label that is on a certain button that in one browser says save and the other one says download could potentially be be um, misleading for, for some users. And frustrating them. Of course, you don't want to yeah. frustrate your participants if they uh, shall contribute to their experiment. Absolutely. So this is as well important. Absolutely. You want to worship also how they participate in your tools that are not developed by huge companies that do nothing <laughs> else but develop user uh, experience and test it. But yeah, you should be grateful for that, of course. Where can people find ex- existing research software for reuse? So if you have scientists out there listening to us students, and maybe they do not want to build their own or cannot build their own uh, research software, but still would like to have a look. I think we already mentioned GitHub as the, the main repository for every open source project that is in the world. I think a huge platform for that, but also um, have a look into the journals. Some of them publish, explicitly publish software, um, computation communication research, CCR is one of them, but also computation methods and measures. We've mentioned that before and um, I, I think another good way to find existing software is also to just ask in, in your communities. Do you have an additional Slack channel for that, Felicia? 
well, you can just do it in the, in the already existing one. That's that's for sure. Yeah, or or just checking the the tool presentations from the last few years at ICA. There's always interesting stuff coming up. But in the end, I mean, my my process is very much Google and then either GitHub or Stack Overflow. I mean, it, it's not very different from what you're probably used to normally. But I'm happy to see that there are more efficient ways out there. So maybe just ask your colleagues. <laughs> there is also a new directory, um, at least in the German community, uh, from DigiPuck, which is the German ICA, the German association, so to say. They are listing research software. Um, I think there are other efforts in that extent, to that extent as well. So one good way would also always be to, I guess, ask colleagues whether they've heard of somebody or something that is closely related to what you're up to. Yeah, and, and that way we could probably also prevent that five research groups at the same time work on, on software that does the same thing, because that's what we initially wanted to prevent when making open source software, but in the end, sometimes it happens that you have four projects doing the same thing. Instead of joining forces and professionalize yes. our long-term <laughs> <laughs> research Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, I think. Well, not I think. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Felicia. <laughs> um, but I think we're, 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 we got a, a, a great insight into, into coding our own research software. I'm not sure whether we, we've left anything out. Imesha, do you have any... Additional no, I think I, I think it was a great overview about to think about developing your own research software and of course that it's very or it can be challenging but offers a lot of opportunities especially bringing in this communication science expertise or this research design or research agenda into your software and be able to analyze maybe data that you otherwise couldn't get so I think this was great thank you so much mm -hmm. Thanks. It was a nice talk. <laughs> and also lots of, lots of food for, for future episodes. I think we touched several things that we should address um, in, in the future in, in that um, respect. So thanks again, uh, Felicia, for your time, your insights that you provided us with. And uh, thanks to you for listening and hopefully sharing also with others this podcast episode or the, the overall podcast. And if you have any thoughts or ideas or feedback for us um, on what questions we should tackle in the future, what guests we should talk to, please reach out to us. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. What is it about? Computational Communication Science?